everyone, I am Vivian Ho, host of Pair's Healthcare Playbook Podcast. At Pair, we partner with founders from Idea to Series A, and we're excited to share stories from trailblazing healthcare founders and leaders on how they built a digital health business from zero to one. We're super excited to have Tom, founder of Hippocrates, One Medical, and Galileo join us today. Tom Lee is currently the CEO and founder of Galileo, a modern medical group committed to making quality healthcare affordable and accessible to all, including the underserved and Medicaid population. In February 2021, Galileo raised a Series C round from Foresight Capital, and previous investors include Oak HCFT, Redpoint, and DNA Capital. Prior to Galileo, Tom also founded One Medical, a national leader in tech-enabled primary care that went public in 2020, and Hippocrates, a medical reference app still widely used today. Tom is also a board-certified internist who completed training at Harvard's Brigham and Women's Hospital. I'm truly honored to have you here today. There wasn't a better healthcare entrepreneur we could have had here today to share lessons on building a digital health business from zero to IPO. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. Is the one the IPO now? Is that the benchmark zero to one? Yes. <laughs> I don't wow. always get to talk okay. to founders who have IPO, so I get to say zero to <laughs> IPO now. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Okay, so you have an incredible career starting incredibly successful companies. Before I ask, what's your secret sauce? Can you share what you wanted to be growing up and your past entrepreneurship? I mean, like every kid, probably a race car or a firefighter or something like that. But uh, I mean, I didn't really know what I really wanted to do until much later. But, you know, I, I toyed with a, a career in the arts. So graphic design was one of my kind of core passions, but I like helping people in the sciences. And so medicine made kind of the logical choice for me. And once I ended up in med school, it was pretty clear that the craft of medicine was, I found quite enjoyable. The business and organization of medicine, I found horrific. And that's kind of what prompted me to <laughs> pursue entrepreneurship. It was mostly uh, out of necessity rather than by choice. Awesome. And I guess going straight into it, Hippocrates, your first startup, I'd love to talk about how it was born. For those in the audience who are potentially still children in 1998, Apocrates is a mobile medical reference app, which started on Palm Pilot and became the first medical app on Apple's mobile platform. Well, I mean, just for the record, we were probably kids in 1998 starting Apocrates back then too. So we were all kids then. Um, and, you know, the, the story of that is really it's Stanford Business School, uh, a bunch of friends and classmates working on a common idea. And for me, it was mostly an opportunity to work with a couple of friends on helping build a company. But One Medical and, and Galileo were kind of the broader vision ideas for me. And uh, Hippocrates was, you know, kind of jumping in. You know, one of the great professors at Stanford, you know, really said it well. You can't really study entrepreneurship. You just kind of have to dive in and do it to understand, A, you know, do you enjoy it? But B, are you good at it? And it's just one of those things that you just got to do it to see if you're good at it. Were you in like a class or something? Or were you just hanging out with your Stanford business school classmates and brainstorming? Yeah, context matters. You know, we were in the middle of a dot-com boom when we were in business school. It was a class project that eventually morphed into the company Hippocrates. But um, it was mostly just ideas and energy crystallized by a lot of what I call drive and energy by Richard and Jeff, you know, the co-founders of the company. So all of that happens through just 
context, extremely hot funding environment, and a lot of eager you know, kids and students that wanted to do something in, in entrepreneurship. So I think it was us cutting our first teeth in you know, what it meant to be a startup and, and how to build a startup. And you can kind of see the early DNA form then that eventually became Hippocrates, but then you know, derivative companies, One Medical and Galileo on, on my side, and Jeff's done Deximity, and Richard's also done some other startups. So yeah. it's just that forward energy continues to get catalyzed going forward. And I guess, you know, in terms of starting a business school, did you end up finishing business school? Did you do it at the same time? Uh, it depends on who you talk to. Some people were only going to school doing startups and not going <laughs> to class at that time. I was probably more studious and I was spending more of my time in class. But for me, the, the reason why I went to business school was not to do Hippocrates. It was more about One Medical and Galileo. I really wanted to design the services of healthcare differently. And Hippocrates is a great company, but it was mostly a point of care decision-making tool. Mm-hmm. And my focus in you know, energy was around how do you redesign the services to impact the actual experience of care from a quality of service and an and a affordability perspective. So that's kind of what my energy was. So during those days, it was mostly just, you know, investing time and in learning. You know, mm-hmm. back in the day, I was just a doc learning how to use Excel and understanding what data tables were. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're just kind of trial by fire at that stage. But with One Medical, it was kind of the first germination of what it meant to really build up a service business, which was a whole different dimension to startups, right? It's uh, mm-hmm. managing people who are the service. You know, with software, it's fun because you can go into, you know, a room and build something and then launch it and just watch it continue to propagate. With services, it's much more like, a day in and day out activity, you know, the people need to be taken care of and you really need to make sure that the organizational culture is strong to support, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the service execution. Got it. And I guess transitioning to One Medical, it sounds like it's always been in your early entrepreneurial inspirational vision. I'm curious, what was it like on day zero? Were you thinking of, you know, I'm going to test this out by having a physical clinic? And having your first one medical, and we're, I'm curious, where was this first one medical? <laughs> and also, when did you start thinking about sort of raising money? Was it sort of after you've proven the MVP out, or was it before you actually built out an actual clinic? It's a great question. Day zero of one medical was, am I really ready to start a new service business? I mean, I had helped build out a lot of the product line and done a lot of the operational work at Hippocrates, but like I said, a software business is very different than running a medical practice. Um, And you're entering the Byzantine world of healthcare reimbursement, healthcare regulations. And so I really didn't know much at that time. So really rolling the dice was, uh, frankly, I was just getting older and I didn't want to spend more time consulting and learning. I had to dive in. So again, you know, similar type of mindset that Grossback from Sanford would say is you just got to dive in and do it. So at the end of the day, I wasn't fully prepared to start One Medical, but I had to do it and had to figure it out uh, faster because building a service business would take a long time. So day zero was pulling the trigger on, you know, because Hippocrates is not liquid at that time. Hippocrates was still, you know, growing and scaling, but not a public company at that stage. So pretty much on my own dime with the support of alone from my parents, just opened the first practice up and listed myself in the insurance directories and 
it was like this, you know, two-bit corner office that, you know, is still near uh, the original One Medical and um, basically was the, you know, I tell people I was the administrator, the, the receptionist, the physician, the blood draw person, the billing, the accountant, the website designer, and the marketing person. It was a team of one plus, you know, a couple other people back then. Yeah. Wow. So you were the actual physician and you were seeing patients. Yeah, it was it was ultra concierge. I would meet you at the door, take you back. I would do your blood work. Yeah, some of those patients are still one medical patients, and uh, you know that's probably fifteen years ago. But they they got the hands on treatment uh, from me back then. And then obviously once we grew in scale, we hired docs, and uh, I wasn't able to see patients as much. Was it? I guess. Do you think it was like kind of going back? Was it crucial for you to do it yourself, or do you think you would have? hired someone else to work while you kind of figure out the business side? I don't know. I think from my perspective, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty on this kind of stuff, but I think it's really hard to fully understand the nature of a service business if you haven't done it yourself. I think so many people look at services and criticize, oh, you know, the, I can't believe the person didn't respond within blah time. And, you know, everybody is kind of like a armchair quarterback when it comes to services, but you ask them to host a party and, you know, it's easy to see flaws in, you know, whatever cocktail party they're hosting. So I think people underestimate how hard it is to execute services well. And um, for me, all those little details in learnings helped build, you know, the early kernel of what One Medical would become. And it allowed me to, you know, speak credibly with team members about how to do X, Y, and Z. So for me, it was invaluable. Awesome. And then in terms of this in-person service model, back then were investors interested in funding the original idea? What was the feedback that you got um, when you were raising yeah. money? Well, I mean, you know, I wasn't just a doc trying to raise capital at that stage. I was a Stanford Business School grad that happened to be a doc that happened to build up, you know, a successful company, Hippocrates. And so I was a known entity. That being said, I also knew nobody would fund One Medical when I started it um, because it's a service business. At that stage, nobody cared about funding anything in services, let alone healthcare services, let alone primary care services, which were considered the dog of the dog of the dog. So nobody would have funded that. So I knew I had to bootstrap it and build it to a credible place. And so I spent the first two years building that up to a credible point where it actually had, you know, paying customers and margins and things that made it more venture worthy. But it was still a pretty big leap of faith for, you know, because the traditional venture in healthcare is not the most progressive in terms of using tech to build a great company. It, usually the, a lot of capital that goes into healthcare is, is funding roll-ups. And, uh, and I wanted to attract tech VC. So, uh, so, you know, credit to Benchmark and Bruce at Benchmark, but they took a bet on me and the company and the vision and really spawned this whole generation of venture capital funded uh, healthcare. There wasn't really anything like it at that time before from Silicon Valley. This was definitely a first of its kind. Yeah, I mean, even now, I think a lot of tech investors are starting to dive into healthcare, but are still worried about the margins. How did you sort of think about where technology played a role in the early days and how you could make things more, I guess, you know, uniconomics friendly or margin friendly? Um, well, you kind of need to understand 
how healthcare works in, in what, you know, labor costs are, you know, I think people are so attracted to healthcare because of the mission and the size of the industry, you know, the potential TAM, but I think they underestimate the complexities of tapping into the TAM. And so until you get into the services side, it's really hard to generate any substantial TAM. I mean, everything in big is, is big in healthcare. So even if it's a side business, it could be big. But if you really want to make impact, you kind of have to do it in services. And then if you want to do it in services, you really have to understand labor costs. And I think most tech type entrepreneurs don't think about it because the variable cost of technology is close to zero. <laughs> so um, you don't have to have that discipline. And when you're looking at it from a service side, um, you really need to have that discipline. And most people don't. People would rather just charge more. And that's why yeah. you end up with a lot of concierge services that cost more. And mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with that. There's always a 1% or a 10% solution, but it doesn't truly, quote unquote, innovate mm-hmm. on the cost of care. Got it. That's helpful. And then I guess for the playbook part of the healthcare playbook, I also like to dive into the how to. So, what was it like to get your first thousand patients? You know, like, did, how do you get people to walk through your two office? Or your yeah to your two office door and and meet with you. I guess you were you just posting on I don't know it was was there a Zocdoc back then? Uh, let's just say there was barely you know Web two O back then. Uh, there was no iPhone back then. Okay. <laughs> the way most people found their doctor at that time was asking their coworker, looking up in an insurance directory, and maybe Google. But you know Google Maps really wasn't around then. There wasn't a lot around to search. For things. And Zocdoc was around then, you know, in the earlier days, but not at the level that it is today. So it was, you know, Zocdoc and One Medical kind of similar early era type of companies, but we were definitely on the service side trying to find patients. So that was hard, but you learn a lot about acquisition and different channels. And this is before there was digital marketing and social media, really. So those channels are all ubiquitous today. And those are pros and cons, right? Uh, the more ubiquitous, the more crowded and noisy they all are too. So it doesn't necessarily mean that it's easier or harder. It just means you've got more options. Got it. I guess that, you know, the lessons from one medical are less relevant today. Maybe Galileo would be more relevant with digital marketing now in play. Kind of transitioning to Galileo, I'd love to talk about sort of your new entrepreneurial chapter. You know, what was the mission that you hoped to achieve that was different from one medical um, and love to hear sort of your personal journey of closing one chapter, yeah. starting a new one. Yeah, I mean, I think you kind of highlighted a little bit. You know, it took us a long time to get to 100,000 lives at One Medical. And, you know, with Galileo, we'll hopefully cross that threshold pretty soon. So that's much faster. Let's call it 5x faster. And the the mission of Galileo is similar, but we wanted to impact more lives more quickly. Um, if you think about One Medical, it's a great service experience model. It's really designed best for urban and commercial markets. But one of the challenges, it's really hard to go go to last mile populations. It's really hard to service underserved populations, complex populations. And so Galileo was purposely built for the lives that One Medical would not be as well designed for. And so we designed it as a digital first model that can scale. We designed it as a higher quality of care model in general. So we wanted to change the nature of how we made decisions, how we measured and managed chronic conditions, how we 
integrated behavioral and social factors into the care decision-making process. We wanted to take care of the underserved, uh, people that couldn't take care of themselves. And so it needed a completely different structural chassis to do so. And, you know, the nice thing about starting Galileo is there's, you know, A, there's a lot more capital. B, the, the channels of distribution are a little bit more clear. At the same time, they're also more noisy. But importantly, the software tools and data tools are much more sophisticated that allow somebody like ourselves at Galileo to take advantage of that and harness it to effective use. Some people may not know how to use the technology in the right direction. And so because we have so much experience on the service side of things, we can use the technology to harness it to effectuate outcomes, effectuate you know, cost of care, and do it much more reliably across broad populations. And in terms of breaking down Galileo's service offerings, you have a virtual primary care clinic, you have in-person components. Can you talk about specifically how, what types of software you're talking about leveraging in terms of kind of the distribution channels with your partnership with MVP Health is your sort of launch strategy to partner with Medicaid and payers? Or I guess I'm curious what's under, it's kind of hard to tell based on the website. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, obviously, we don't kind of talk about everything on our website. You know, the website gives people a bit of a frame, but most of our partners, you know, are having detailed conversations with us. You know, they're not Googling us and saying, hey, is there a great multi-specialty digital partner that does value? Like, you know, we're not trying to optimize on search. We're just, you know, networking and partnering with the best um, health plans in the regions and the country Mm -hmm. to design novel solutions. So the real premise of our business is, be a value-based provider against broad populations and partner with folks where there's alignment on that. It typically is with payers, but also with um, some employers as well that care about total cost of care and value. So in those kind of types of partnerships, uh, we tend to excel. And, um, you know, unlike a lot of other solutions, you know, we've got a track record of delivering, you know, what I call fundamentally different type of care longitudinally um, while reducing total cost of care. So it does take a different clinical mindset separate from the tech stack and you know everything else that you need to do to build a service business. Got it. And then in terms of a partnership with a health plan or employer, virtual care kind of makes sense and you can kind of have it from anywhere. What are the in-person components that you have prioritized for Galileo? Yeah, everything is right-sized, meaning you know, the stuff that can be done digitally is done digitally for obvious reasons. The stuff that can't be done digitally is done in the home or in the office um, where it can be best effectuated, right? So very often, you know, the most expensive 20% costs 80% of the dollar, and it's because they can't get to certain appointments. They don't know how to reconcile their medications. They've got a bunch of fall risks, and you name it. It's, it's you know, umpteen different reasons why people don't effectuate the care that any well-intentioned primary care doc is going to prescribe these things in an office-based setting. But most docs don't know what the hell is going on after the prescription has been made or the order has been sent, right? And that's the challenge is, you know, what happens in between those office visits. And so for us, Galileo is managing everything that happens between those office visits and um, doing it at a higher fidelity they tend to be non-clinical issues, but they also include some clinical issues. So it's knowing which issues to attack with what resource when to make sure that the patient's well cared for uh, under a value-based arrangement. 
When you say non-clinical issues, you mean like social determinants or food insecurity? Correct. Yeah. I mean, you know, most docs have never labeled this as S2H until recently, but this is, these are just the obstacles to care that any good clinician is going to know that food, housing, transportation, you know, are, are general barriers to um, mm-hmm. life and, and to optimizing your health. And in terms of sort of treating your one medical population is a little bit more focused on the employer side and Galileo being more Medicaid side, what are the differences in the populations and how you serve them? Yeah, the nuance with us is it's not necessarily just Medicaid. It's actually Medicaid, Medicare, and commercialized. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Galileo is really designed to service any life on a thoughtful, high-quality basis affordably. And to do so reliably. So we're already servicing patients in all 50 states. We already have, you know, a, a high number of employer and payer partners. We currently we currently service uninsured, commercial, individual exchange, Medicare, Medicaid, and dual populations, right? The sick and um, lower income elder uh, populations. So we uh, today, even just though we're only a few years in, are already servicing this breadth off of a common platform. And, you know, it's hard to do, but, you know, we have uh, enough care experience to be able to do so and do it in an effective way using technology. And I guess um, going on the technology levers in Medicaid, you know, there seems to be a, Galileo was like sort of the original startup in Medicaid, but now there are a couple primary Medicaid uh, underserved population startups popping up. I'm curious, you know, what your perspective is on the landscape and then also the technology levers that you think could be could be used in Medicaid and underserved populations. Yeah, I mean, obviously, everybody has a different approach here. The challenge with Medicaid is obviously it's state to state. It's a much more complex population. And tech is part of the solution, but it's not the only part of the solution. So I think there's a lot of interest in the Medicaid uh, population because of, you know, frankly, just mission. Uh, it's an important population to serve. And there's enough capital looking for a unique angle. And frankly, that's kind of where the capital is being deployed is trying to find a unique angle on something. So I think, you know, we'll see a lot of this uh, happen. You know, we'll see what actually happens as a result. A lot of these things are are harder than they look from afar. And so, you know, we'll see kind of how things shake out once the capital is (laughs) deployed. Like you're in 50 states, you've basically done this all under the wraps, you haven't been super public about Galileo. What do you think were the key success levers? Yeah, certainly it would be hard to do this without the experience we've had at One Medical. The, the learnings from having built that model mean that we don't have to learn that over again. That's given. So all the service execution, hiring, technology, all that kind of stuff is already part of our DNA. And going even back to the days of Hippocrates, so we've got enough experience doing a lot of the work that's necessary to do this higher order challenge with Galileo. So that certainly helps, um, having been kind of experienced in this space. Certainly, you know, like I said, the skids are greased more for an NA startup independent of experience, right? So you don't have to have experience to get capital and or a lot of runway these days. So... So that's easier too, capital and, and technology options, and the, the vendor ecosystem is more mature. So that's all kind of positive. I still think, though, that you know 
the hard work remains ahead of Galileo and the rest of the industry still. I think there's still a lot more rhetoric than reality today still. And um, that's why we don't really tend to focus too much on shouting from the hilltops. You know, we're just kind of nuts and bolts focused on moving the needle. And so we still think there's a lot of needle to be moved first before you start talking about it. Yeah, <laughs> I respect that. What is your vision for Galileo in five years? You said that there's a lot of work to be done. I think five years for us should be enough time to have validated proof points on quality and affordability across most demographics in the U.S. And if you can service most demographics in the U.S., you can service most demographics internationally as well. But I do think that I think we we should and would like to have clear, definitive validation points. Uh, like I said, I'm moving the needle and the things that matter to us as society and as patients are quality of care and affordability of care. Um, and so we want to be able to kind of prove that more definitively over time. Awesome. Great. And I guess I'd love to just pick your brain on what you believe are the key characteristics of a successful healthcare startup. It depends on, are you saying pre-facto or post-facto? <laughs> <laughs> if it's in advance, you know, what makes for a great startup I think it's people who care about making an impact, right? I mean, it's fine if money is your motivator. There's nothing wrong with that. But I do think that society needs more individuals motivated on making an impact. And yes, hopefully there'll be a financial outcome. It doesn't mean being naive to the economics. And I think that would be the second dimension. So kind of being motivated by impact and mission, but frankly, financially sophisticated, so you're not naively going after mission by itself. I think those two working hand in hand, hand in glove is, is probably a better recipe for success than just one of the two. That's helpful. I'm curious your philosophy in terms of the ideation process. Um, it sounds like you've always been very, you've had like a very strong vision and it hasn't changed much, but I'm curious, you know, when coming up with new healthcare startup concepts for those who are thinking about new ideas or trying out new ideas. Do you have any tips on that process and learning how to iterate quickly? Even if you have a strong vision, like how do you iterate your product so that you get to product market fit faster? Yeah, I think, look, everybody's going to have different ways to get there, but here's kind of my lens on it. I think particularly in healthcare, there's not a lot of room to be sloppy and fail fast. You know, I know that's a vogue thing for some companies. That might be true where there's low barriers to entry, speed is more important. You can be sloppy and the mistakes aren't harmful. I don't think that's true necessarily in the healthcare industry. So, you know, different markets and different industries are going to lend themselves to different styles. And I, I would say if you're trying to innovate in healthcare, being more deliberate, more strategic, more what I call reasonable about what's likely to happen and to be more disciplined about thought uh, reduces the need to pivot, which I think is expensive in a slow moving industry like healthcare. So I think being more deliberate is one. I do think that a lot of people don't really know what they're starting and they have an idea. And so many people in healthcare are way too abstract with their product market fit right? Oh, I have this need or the market really needs this. And they don't really get into the details of what that really is and what problem does it solve and how does it get distributed? So I think the resolution of 
the product market fit envisioning needs to happen iteratively more quickly. Um, meaning, when we started off GLA, we had a, a broad vision, but there was low resolution on the idea. And so you're always battle testing the resolution of the idea against the broader strategic frame and going back and forth and making sure those two are consistent. I think people don't do enough iteration between strategic frame and what I call product market fit resolution thinking um, and don't kind of look at it as cynically as they can about what's really going to take hold and who's the real customer, who's really paying for this and why. Because you do usually have more than one key constituent, unlike a, a pure consumer market where it's free market, you just have, for the most part, your consumer to worry about and maybe your suppliers. Uh, in healthcare, typically, you're, you're dealing with the end consumer with their own bizarre incentive structures because they're not often paying for things. Then you got the purchaser and distributor that might be different. And then you got regulatory frameworks that might have a different goal and purpose. So because of that, people need to look at product market fit from two or three different dimensions as well. So I think that level of thinking isn't done. And so it's done in a vacuum, which might look great, but can lead to obstacles on go-to-market or otherwise. In practice, how do you sort of demonstrate that practice? I'm curious, you know, it's, it's in theory, but like I'm curious what kind of specific things you would do to address that. I think... People don't really understand the large enterprises well enough, right? And they, mm-hmm. you really kind of have to in healthcare, right? Most people, when they go into healthcare startups, they, they're thinking about the end user, the consumer, the patient, whatever that is. And it's an important constituent, no question, but they almost forget or ignore who is this solving a business solution for, and so, and then they think of a payer monolithically, or they think of an employer monolithically, or they think of a, a constituency monolithically, and they don't really understand. And don't get me wrong, it's hard to understand that, but you kind of have to understand it to know. And I, I find the number of people that try to network into payers, and don't get me wrong, I did the same. It's really hard to do, is to find the right person, because it's kind of like these entities are huge. and any individuals only can have a narrow lens on it, but getting as much insight and triangulation on motivation by third parties is, is probably undervalued by the entrepreneur. And frankly, it's also very difficult. And so there might be some short shortcuts, you know, that, you know, if I were to kind of give a new entrepreneur advice, the shortcut might be talking to attorneys, right? Cause they have a lot of expertise in, interact with these experts. So they often have uh, industry level expertise, but without having to be that industry expert and or consultants, you know, uh, know, in a traditional market, you may not rely on that expertise, but in healthcare, they tend to be pretty good, what I call landscape professionals that understand motivations and landscapes of markets better than any individual operator from, because these entities are huge. That's helpful. Great. Good practical advice. Awesome. And then I guess my last question sort of before we wrap up, where do you think there is opportunity for healthcare founders to spend their time building new ideas, even outside of Medicaid or based on your kind of exposure to the healthcare world? Curious where you think the opportunities are. Uh, I'm not sure I fully understand if it's like, hey, where do I get some experience learning or where there's... 
Um, the question is more about like, yeah. you know, where the, do you think the white spaces are? Or where do you think there's opportunities for more startups? Oh, well, let's just see here. If you say where are the white spaces on the funding landscape, that's kind of hard because everything's been funded up the yin-yang. <laughs> that shouldn't necessarily translate into a startup white space because hmm. execution is going to be more important than the funding. I mean, at, at, with some caveats. And so probably everything is still at some level of white space in healthcare because it's so hard to execute that I wouldn't be too concerned about the white space. I would be more concerned about, you know, what can you leverage as an entrepreneur that's already in your asset base that you don't have to reproduce? Because I think that always helps rather than reinvent the wheel, you know, focus on things that you're good at, focus on your unique knowledge that allows you to innovate on a specific layer. For example, you know, I happen to be a clinician. I didn't plan it that way, but mm -hmm. it's only because I went through my medical training before I realized the healthcare industry was all, all screwed up. So <laughs> only because of that was I able to then innovate in the service delivery layer with a unique clinical lens. Um, so, you know, leverage your expertise into a space that's meaningful for you. And I think you'll already have a head start than the average entrepreneur. And then, you know, have the discipline to understand what the real business is. And I don't think a lot of people think about the, where is the fundamental business in the idea. And mm -hmm. too often in healthcare, people are enamored by the idea and not the business. And so, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's a lot of white space if you put business, you know, hardcore critical thinking, all the five forces and who's going to pay for what and why they would pay for you versus what else, you know, substitute switching costs, all that kind of stuff matters because it's slow to switch. It's slow to change. Uh, most of healthcare is purchased in bulk through large entities. And you can hope that it's going to somehow move in a different direction. But I think the reality is today, the vast majority is still purchased in large group entities. So you have to kind of pay attention to that. And if right. you do, there's a lot of white space. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great way to frame it. Great. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Really enjoyed our conversation and hope uh, our audience learns a lot from your experiences. Great. Thanks for having me.